Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. finish that and watch the rest of that. It was, uh, it's painful to see. Hey, good morning. Uh, welcome to Eastlake. Welcome to Eastlake on Time Church Sunday, uh, Time Change Sunday, the bad one, you guys. You guys, like seriously, extra feather in your cap for showing up early. Uh, it's cap, by the way, is the right answer if you were, if you were still wondering what that was. Uh, for, for making it happen, we're so glad that you're here. We're finishing off a series called Saints and Sinners today. Uh, it's a series on the checkered history of the church. I don't know the last time you sat for a job interview, maybe it's been a few years, uh, but the process really hasn't changed that much. What's your name? Why you involved, you know, what's your history? What's your experience with this? And why do you want this job? And then one of the questions that inevitably comes up is, tell us about your strengths. What would you consider to be some of your strengths? And, uh, and you sit there and you're like, well, I mean, like, how long do you have? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, humility for one to start with. And then beyond that, um, you know, and you can go off and go on. And then the follow-up question to that one uh, it always comes is, okay, what would you say are some of your weaknesses, right? And they're, they're trying to like, it's a test. It's, they're trying to figure you out a little bit. Are you self-aware enough to be able to say that you have some? Or are you going to give some bogus answer like, just perfectionism, you know? Like, I just, I show up to work too early sometimes. They're like, hey, whoa, we don't open yet, you know? Uh, I take on too many things. Uh, those are the, okay, Russell Wilson, hang on just a second there, buddy. We're going to, see, I can say that now. He's not on the team anymore, so I can make fun of him now. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing, though. We're, we're, try, we're, we're trying to play this game and, and do these weaknesses. And when it comes to even, like, this series has been basically a thing of the church. Listen, um, wh- what would you say the strengths of the church are? You don't have to be around a church very long to hear somebody like me talk about the strengths of the church, Right. I mean, I, I think one of the big ones that we've harped on over and over again at this is idea of Jesus said that one of the biggest things that people are going to know you are my disciples is by the way that you love one another. We, we've propped this up. We've talked about how Jesus took a very common um, like rule, a, a bronze rule or sil- silver rule, the rule of don't do to somebody else what you wouldn't have done, you want done to yourself, which is a basic way to kind of live in a civilized society. Don't, if you don't want somebody to steal from you, don't do it from them. If you don't want somebody to hit your car and leave. Don't do it to them, right? That's going to be functional society. And Jesus like ups the ante on this and he establishes this golden rule or platinum rule, like love them in the way that you would want to be loved. So you must love one another, love in the way that I have loved you. It's like a big deal. Like I think, I think that kind of mentality, that piece of of, of that, which you like in humanity, you like when people do things for other people and you specifically you, uh, that they would rather have, you know, done to themselves if they decided to do it for everybody. It's like inspiring. It's great. It's like, that's awesome. That's a, that's a big thing that the church needs to be about and talks on Sundays should be about. Um, we, we, we said, uh, we've said over and over again, 
the concept of imago Dei, the concept that people are created in the image of their creator, in the image of God, uh, is a unique concept to Christianity and Judaism that, is, that like, changed the world. It literally uh, crushed paradigms of, of, uh, of why should we not invade, why should we not do this, why should we not, all this kind of stuff, because this is, these are our brothers and sisters. These are people who are, are made in God's image in this way. Um, it's what inspired hospitals to be started, charities to be run, religious liberties to be taken care of, anti-slavery movements. Uh, a, a lot of these things were, were birthed out of this idea of what if we took seriously the idea that some, this person across from me, who's of no blood relation to me, not family, I don't owe them anything in that way, but deserves uh, respect and treatment and space and, and opportunity and whatever else. I mean, this... I know it's very true. I understand that Christians were painfully slow in churches specifically in eradicating slavery in the history of the American church. But every anti-slavery movement that we know of, whether in the 2nd, 5th, 7th, or 18th century, was heavily populated by Christians. And the main arguments for why they did the things that they did, the thing that informed and inspired them to be able to make this a passionate thing for them, was not economic means. It was not political means or scientific means. It was theological means. Those were the, that was the backdrop for which they did their work and inspired their work. After all, you look at natural philosophy. Aristotle was famously arguing that nature intended a slave class for them. The arguments of 18th and 19th century abolitionists came out of this image of God sort of of conviction. What if we took this seriously? These beliefs served as a backdrop and informed the language that all that it would eventually get to the spot where we would, somebody would pin these words, right? All humans are equal by virtue of being endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And what if a nation made that kind of a hub for, for how we existed? And thus, a lot of the things that you and I love about America, the, the things that you love about nationalism, the things that you love about why we exist or the world and the way that it works is inspired by stuff that comes from there. So like when, if you were asking me the question, kind of in a job interview sort of setting, uh, what would you say are the, the strengths of the church? I mean, honestly, my response would be like, how much time do you have? How, how, how much are you willing to read? How much are you willing to investigate on? I think, there's a, I think there is a good deal about what you like about humanity that was inspired from a Judeo-Christian uh, worldview. Then, though, a fair assessment of an interview would be the follow-up question of that. What would you say are some of the weaknesses? What are the blind spots? What are the weak spots uh, for a church? And that is important. That's what this series has been about, taking these seriously, making sure that we too are self-aware of our blind spots, that we don't say, well, the church is just like, ooh, obsessed on being perfect, right? Like, come on, like really deal with this. Because if we don't actually deal with our faults and with our shortcomings, the problem is that the past has a, hist- has a way of repeating itself, right? Not only is it not authentic, not only is it hard for somebody who's irreligious to sit in a setting like this to hear pastors like me extol the virtues of the church without ever dealing with the garbage that is involved in the church uh, and then be like, that just doesn't feel authentic. That's not real life. It's, it's messier than that. It has to be messier than that because humans are involved in this way. So we've said, all right, for one series, instead of harping on the benefits of, you know, and all the good things to the church and trying to sell you like an infomercial, we are going to take ownership of some of the really not so great things that have been a part of this thing. Because the history is, the history of the church has been up and down. It's the sawtooth history of the church, right? Uh, there's been uh, abuse and reform, abuse and reform. And in every era and in every age, what you see are people, individuals, you see movements of people, um, lean, you know, drifting towards abuse as power gets involved. And we just assume, we assume, we we consume things, we, we, we operate in that way, and then, uh, and then out of privilege and power, we just begin to abuse our, our, our authority, and that's one of the hesitations, like, don't give the church too much power, because we've seen historically, it leans towards abuse. And then every once in a while, somebody comes along and says, reform, reform, that's not the way it should be done. What if we did it differently? What if instead of 
that we did this. And that's what we see with Jesus walking through, pointing to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day going, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. What if we did this a different way in this way? So anyways, Christians should have no problem acknowledging the log in their eye, admitting the church's part in prejudice, hatred, and violence of the human story. Uh, and that's what this series has been entirely about. We've looked at some of the big ones. Uh, if you were to ask any sort of you know, average secular uh, person who's like, I'm not really a religious person, um, and well, what, you know, what's your history? What's your perspective on the church and history? Well, you know, there's a bunch of dark marks on, on, on that. What would, you be, what would be some of them? They'd say probably something about the crusade, something about the inquisition. Those are some of the things that we've dealt with. And the temptation to kind of just stop there, and one of the critiques of this series from a couple of you has been, those are things that are in the distant past. We're talking about problems that existed centuries ago. What about now? We've got so many problems now. I understand this series has been, has leaned historical. In fact, at times it's felt like a history class and I felt like I needed to apologize for some of that, which I did last week. And I said, thanks for like obliging me on this kind of stuff. I'll try and warn you when we're in the weeds, right? Like in the same way that I said, uh, I'm gonna warn my kids when a tunnel's coming up, hold your breath. It's gonna be tough, but we're gonna get through this together, right? There's gonna be one of those today. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when it comes. But um, this has been important for us. Like we, we are looking back on this and, and uh, so we're going to fast forward now to a little bit more of a present day sort of thing, because uh, I don't want us to you know, live in this like, well, that was a long time ago. The reality is, like, not even a ton of it is, a, a, there's, there's just a mess within the church that wasn't that long ago. So today, uh, I want to, uh, to start by talking about how between 2001 and 2003, the Boston Globe's famous spotlight investigations found that under an extraordinary cloak of secrecy, the Archdiocese of Boston in the 10 years prior to publication had quietly settled child molestation claims against at least 70 priests. You remember, you remember seeing this probably come out in the news. Um, you probably, maybe you saw the movie that was made about it a few years uh, after the fact. I think it won some award. Who knows what it was? But uh, they had been dealing with some of this behind the scenes. They had tried to cover it up as much as possible because nobody likes bad PR and bad press, right? They had sometimes reassigned these known pedophiles to other parishes or parallel ministries and hospitals or prisons, and some of them reoffended again. I mean, as this stuff was coming out, it was gargantuan. It was like, oh my gosh, this is awful. How do you recover from something like this? In 2012, the government of Australia commissioned the largest and most extensive investigation into institutional child sexual abuse. Institutional meaning this isn't stuff that happens in the home. This is institutional is parents uh, handed over temporary custody of their child uh, under assumed pretenses of safety and, and, and safekeeping uh, for a short period of time, a, uh, a boarding school, an orphanage, uh, a foster care system, a church, a classroom, a camp, uh, something like that. So that's what they, they found. Uh, that's what they said. We need, to do, uh, we need to do a report specifically on institutional um, uh, sec child sexual abuse. Volume 16 of the report, which that means that there was more than 16 probably, at least 16, uh, concerns religious institutions. And that section alone is over 2,500 pages long in their report. The Royal Commission found that at least 5% of all child sexual abuse occurs in institutional settings. So of the, which you might be like, oh, that's you know 95% outside of it. Yeah, but that's still 5% of them happened within this. I assume that you are gonna be 
taking care of my child, right? In the same way that you just dropped some of you, dropped off some of your kids in each of our classrooms. And if you were to ask us, any of the leaders, tell us about this room. What do you guys teach? What's the, what's the goal? We lead with safety, right? Well, here's the deal. Your kids are going to be safe. We, here's what we know that, right? And then we, we, move, on, we move on from there because it's every parent's greatest concern in that way, right? Totally understandable in that way. At least 5% occur in institutional settings. The true figure could be higher due to delayed reporting and underreporting in institutional settings because, again, nobody likes uh, the bad press on that sort of thing. Of those that occurred in institutional settings, so of those 5%, 42% were molested in out-of-home care, such as orphanages, foster care, boarding schools, 32% in schools specifically, and 14.5% of survivors were molested in what the commission categorizes as religious activities which can constitute churches, Sunday schools, youth groups, or summer camps. So 14.5% of the 5%. And the true number is more complicated probably and disturbing because the majority of out-of-home uh, out care programs are governed by religious bodies, orphanages, preschools. How many times are boarding schools and whatever have some sort of religious affiliation or are run by and governed by religious authorities and people who call themselves Christians, right? Tough deal. Virtually all, 95% of the perpetrators of sexual abuse of children uh, in an institutional setting were adult males. More than half of those in religious institutions were in religious ministry, a pastor, uh, a priest, or equivalent, somebody who felt called to ministry, somebody who stands up in front of people on weekends and opens the Bible and reads verses like Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and says things that cause people to stumble, or sorry, Luke chapter 17, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anybody through whom they come. It'd be better for one of them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone, a big, large rock tied around your neck, than to cause one of these little children to stumble. So watch yourselves. In other words, there is a vulnerability that comes with a child. Their brain isn't fully cooked yet. You got to be really careful. Be careful what you say and do around them. They just don't forget, and it shapes them. And it would be better for you to be thrown into the ocean with a millstone tied around your neck than to deal with the repercussions. Like, pretty harsh. Jesus, that sounds kind of harsh. He's like, yeah. It should be. It's very serious, right? And these are the people who are up here preaching about that. And then it's, it's off. I mean, like, it's just, you kind of want to just go take a shower after this, you know, just to get all that stink off of your, you know, your, your body just from even reading some of these numbers. And I know that there would be people who would say, Brent, this, you know, does it all sound like Catholic church problems, crusades, inquisition, child abuse scandal? Like, how nice for you as a Protestant, right? And a non-denom person to be like, oh, guys, so why you shouldn't be a Catholic, right? And not, trust me, I'm not doing that, right? And here's, here's a couple of reasons why. Hear me out. If you come from a Catholic background, you're calling your grandma right now. She's Catholic. Uh, and being like, I got to get out of this church. Here's the deal. They were the only game in town for 1,500 years. Everybody, we all have our common heritage. It doesn't split off until about 1,500 with the Protestant Reformation, right? And until then, that was the only game in town. So this was the church, so we have ownership. When the, when the Pope, when the pope uh, of the Catholic Church came into the Crusades in about the 11th century and said, hey, you can absolve all of your sins uh, by taking up this sword and go fighting the Muslims in the East— that is our heritage, okay? We come from that. That isn't us specifically, like me, but, you know, like, that's a big deal. Like, the, we have some ownership in that way. Number two, a substantial portion of uh, all faith-based schools and children's homes in America are run by Catholic entities. The Catholic Church is the largest provider of non-government welfare in the country, and, and they've been around the longest. So it's a sheer numbers game in terms of, wow, they've got a lot of crap to deal with. Well, yeah, they're also very, very big. Right? So, like, hear me in my defense of, of, of this. Like, I'm not, 
the Protestant church has unfortunately been leveraged some of these things against the Catholic church. In other words, to disparage them, hoping that you like us more. Um, That's not what I'm doing. I'm just trying to show you that there are messes that abound because people are involved in this. And not to mention number three, there are plenty of examples of non-Catholic religious institutional abuse, right? One showed up this week as I watched a large church in uh, Canada, uh, Ontario area, um, a church that I've followed for a long time. One of their teaching pastors was a guy who was a phenomenal communicator. I watched him. I'm like, that guy is good. Like, I enjoy his stuff. He wrote several books. I used one of his books to, to be a part of a series that we did here about four or five years ago. The series is called The End of Religion, book by the same name. Uh, you know, awesome, incredible thinker, all that kind of stuff. And it comes out this last, well, it came out a couple months ago, and they were just dealing with it now. But um, that uh, he had met with counseling. He had met um, some woman for counseling, uh, 20 years younger than him. She came to him in a vulnerable setting. I've got some things I'm working through. They had an affair, not really an affair. He took advantage of it. Uh, uh, leverage, and the church is coming out going, it's a power situation. This isn't like they met each other at the gym and had this, this fling. He used his position of power uh, to, um, you know, to, to do this awful deal. And, and, and it, now they're trying to, work through all of this. They're, they're having, they had a in third party invest, uh, in, independent investigator come out and present and do the findings and all this kind of stuff. And I'm watching as this church is getting smeared in the press and bad press and he's getting smeared and they should be. And right, and that, that's part of it. That's part of the thing in, in the, is we, we read about it and we mentioned this last week, like the measuring stick for this. When people go, they, I can't believe this happens. And in a church, no less. And he was a pastor, Right. We can't be like, well, I mean, you know, we're all human. This is... No, 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 that's true. It's absolutely true. We should own that and be like, it's awful. It's not great. I don't go through these numbers to be like, hey, guys, you know, uh, aren't you lucky that you attend Eastlake or whatever? That's stupid. That's like, this is a huge, absolute mess in this absolutely awful way. With all of this as a backdrop, one Nobel Prize winning physicist put it this way. With or without religion, good people can behave well and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion, which is awful, which is awful. And as much as we can say, uh, well, that's not true, right? Um, it's only a matter of looking at sometimes what history uh, has to take. And, and then, then, then you come into the disingenuity, uh, disingenuousness of the person who leveraged religion, knowing we can use religion. If it, you know, that gets people to do a lot of different things. It's, it's awful. And, and what it leads us to a question, a really relevant question is this. Has Christianity been a unique contributor to evil? Has it been a unique contributor to evil? When, when asked the question, what would you say are some of the weaknesses of Christianity? Well. Based on the platform in which it oftentimes puts its leaders and the vulnerable nature of those who show up seeking some sort of solution for problems or help, and the emotional state, the vulnerable emotional state that they find themselves in, um, it is a arena, it is a uh, it's fertile ground for abuse. It is something that if you are not uh, adamant about protecting against, safeguarding against, putting boundaries in place against. Um, I mentioned last week, if you're not aware of it, you begin to drift, and that drift becomes real rapid um, in, in an area like this. And yet, on the same time, you see this, and, uh, ha- and we said at the beginning of the series, my, my hope is 
to have you and, and I get to the spot where we know where the bodies are buried and yet we still identify as Christian. There's still a, a message and a value of hope. There's still value in gathering together. There's still, as bad as it is, is there any, what, what's good about it, right? What, what can be, what's the positives on this? Does the, not that you would go in this balancing the good outweigh the bad positives, but like think about the goodness of this sort of thing. Martin Seligman is a uh, social scientist, not a Christian, by the way, wrote a book on the benefits of religion in terms of why is it, why is a church and things good for the social side of, of life of people? And he said this, a single body of research has demonstrated a positive link between religiosity, particular religious involvement, and psychological and physical well-being. Church support and ministerial support seem to play crucial roles in people's efforts to cope with adversity. Why don't we just scrap all this all together? Well, because there is some sort of benefit to this. Like, it really does help a majority of the people out. In fact, I'm going to go into some details of some findings that he found in this. This is going to be an in-the-weeds moment. Not historically, but like if you don't like numbers and percentages, like, hold your breath, it'll be over soon. But here we go. And in terms of well-being, 78% uh, or more of the, more than 300 studies report a positive associated between religiosity and well-being. Optimism. People are more optimistic. The more religious they are, they tend to be more optimism, uh, optimistic. Uh, uh, a consistent religious uh, uh, conviction um, has influences on depression. 61% of 413 studies report lower rates of depression or faster recovery from depression in religious individuals and social support. It, there's, a, there's a functioning that happens in terms of feeling like I've got community. I've got people who miss me when I'm gone and, find, and like it when I'm there. There's all of these things that come alongside of this, leading this secular, non-Christian scientist to be like, there is good in the churches. Like We shouldn't just Scrap the whole thing, even though you, we read these stats. How do you read these stats and go, like, what, what do you do with all of this? And, but here, then the reality, too, let's bring it home for us here, right? Because these are stats from a study in, in rural America, right? Or, or uh, all, all over America. Let, let's bring it into the Tri-Cities, or at least the Pacific Northwest. Most of you don't need numbers like this to be able to prove to you uh, that this is the case. And most of you know this stuff intrinsically. You come here willingly. On time change weekend, no less. For the most part, on time. You give financially, you attend, you serve, you volunteer your time. Not out of obligation, I hope. Um, you don't come here because all oh, my family's come here for decades. We haven't been around for decades. That's impossible, right? Um, you don't come here because you have to. You don't come here. This isn't like the America South. So like, you're not gonna be like frowned upon if you were at Walmart instead of the church right now at this time of day. Um, you, you come here because you want to. We're Pacific Northwesterners. We're the most independent people group in America. Nobody tells us what to do. People group uh, in this country, we're, we're like mavericks in every sense of the word. And very, we're very utilitarian. We find what works for us and we stick with it. And we don't even have to explain why it works for us. We just know what works for us and we go with it. And on some level, I'm guessing religion works for you, or at least this version of religion works for you. You feel better. You, you're, this is good for my kids. I, I, I'm more inspired. It's uplifting. It makes me leave and, and have hope for humanity or whatever. And, so, and that's what keeps you coming back. And that's great. And stories of abuse, mistreatment, and evil give you pause for sure. And if it was happening on location here, you'd be right to leave, and you would leave, and you should leave. Uh, but my guess is, like me, you're able to kind of differentiate a little bit. You're able to see and to separate the issue and say the problem isn't religion or non-religion. The problem is the human heart in possession of a misdirected passion. The problem is there are human beings involved. And that kind of thing happens when you have human beings involved. 
It's why when you have a dog, you're not surprised there's dog crap in your backyard. You don't walk out there and go, what's this? Fido, what's going on? Is there, is there a problem? Like, this is, this is how it happens. I mean, this is part of the deal with this. We're democratic when it comes to assess, assessing the human condition. We've probably never said it in these words, but when we see these, you're going to be like, yeah, that makes sense for me. The line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Every human being. Like, we all have this propensity towards this. The issue is just... We get passionate about certain things, and occasionally we take shortcuts into getting there, or we prioritize our wants over our means or over, our, uh, um, over what we deserve or a timeline of appropriateness or whatever, and we just we, we, we take shortcuts and we do this, but the line dividing good and evil cuts between every single human being, that it's a problem of the human heart, and it can go either way, and every single person is vulnerable to it, even pastors and even priests and even Catholics, and even Protestants, and even non-denom churches, we all have this propensity to go in this way. One of the lasting images that came out of this pandemic uh, for me <clears throat> was the societal unrest that came to the surface on a lot of things. We saw it on TVs and we saw it everywhere. Protests, moral reckonings, and the removal of statues and names of schools. Because even though their principal contributions were praiseworthy, their past or their personal lives were nonetheless marked by the sins and the blind spots of their day, right? It was like, we're going to tear this down. This is, you know, here's what they said. Did you know that he owned slaves? Did you know that this was the case? Some statues, right, rightfully so, should never have been erected in the first place. They did not deserve statues. Maybe all, maybe some of those statues need to go. Maybe all, listen, maybe all statues people need to go. I don't know. That's whatever. It's like, why do we do this? Maybe maybe the only statues that should be allowed are dolphins and a bear. I think that that's not a bad, not a bad take. Those feel safe. We've been here 10 years. We haven't heard one thing about our dolphins. There's been no letters of let's tear them down. I hear they did something to the mackerel and they just, you know, nothing. It's been really, really nice, actually. My only thought as I watched it happen is that there's something a little bit self-righteous in the trend to condemn people of the past. It assumes that a great figure cannot also be deeply flawed. It also assumes that we ourselves are not party to any present evils that later generations could also condemn, and I'm just not so sure that that's always the case. Maybe we've got a little bit of that in every single one of us. Maybe we're all saints and sinners at different seasons of our life, right? We're all somewhere between these two things. We know enough of ourselves to not consider ourselves to be saints. We also know other people who are like, well, we're not like them. So I'm not a sinner. I'm just like somewhere in the middle between these two things. And maybe that's been true of the church the entire time. Maybe our efforts to kind of portray the church as like this saintly version, you know, imperfect, you come here, I don't want to say the wrong thing, lightning bolts, the funny joke, everybody, <laughs> you know, whatever, I would never say that in church, I do this. It's, uh, you know, we, we've created this aura or whatever, and, and I think it's probably somewhere in between these two sort of things. Maybe our best return on investment for our time would it be to hear Jesus out and to take him seriously when he tells his follower, followers in Matthew chapter 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of this thing, like a summation of all of his Christian teachings, right? Here's, here's what it's going to take. Blessed are the blessed are the blessed are. That's in chapter 5. And then it goes through. And the, the very end, chapter 7, it says this. This is a message version. It's going to resonate a little bit with you because you're going to recognize bits and pieces of it. 
Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures, criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment, that critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face or a speck of sawdust in their eye and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again. Just a big, giant theater, public theater, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Wipe that ugly sneer off your face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Saints and sinners, we're all somewhere in between. The church has been and will continue to be somewhere in between. And perhaps our time would be best spent trying to make sure that we are reforming ourselves against abuses that show up in our own life and pulling ourselves more towards uh, what we know God is calling us to be. Listen, violence has been a universal part of the human story. The demand to love one's enemies has not. Division has been a norm. Inherent human dignity has not. Armies, greed, and the politics of power have been constants in history. Hospitals, schools, and charity for all have not. These are all new. These are all people taking it seriously. Maybe I can work hard. Maybe I instead can focus on myself, find myself somewhere in the tension between sinner and saint. Bullies are common. Saints are not. So let's be saints, individually and then corporately as a church. I think it's the best way to move forward. I think that's the kind of witness. I think the, the witness that says, I got so much stuff to clean up in my own life. I got things in our, our deep past, things in our kind of recent past. And I need to make sure I'm protecting this first and foremost, if I have any sort of role to be a witness to you, right? That is the best use of our time. So. That is why uh, we're all faced the choice. Which one are we going to be, saints or sinners? Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri-Cities in your favorite app store.